0: Good morning. During the season of Epiphany, which is the season of light between Christmas and Lent, we have been focusing on the early chapters of 1 Samuel, this Old Testament book. And in particular, in these early chapters, we've been looking at the theme or the question that Samuel raises, which is that God sees differently than we see that while humans look at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And We've been thinking about what does that mean? What does it mean that God sees our hearts? What does it mean for us to encounter God in these deep places of our hopes, of our fears, of our joy, of our grief, of our shame? And in order to try to get towards that question, a question that's not, not easy, we've been looking at the stories the personal stories in the opening chapters of this book. We've been looking at Hannah and Eli and Samuel. Well, you'll see our passage this morning in chapter 4. It starts with the statement, the word of Samuel came to all Israel, all Israel. And in that opening verse, it is a transition saying that we've moved past personal stories of Hannah or Eli and Samuel. And now we're going to look at the story of a nation, of a people. People of Israel. Earlier, if you were here, you heard about the corruption at the temple in Shiloh. At this time, that was where the temple of Israel was in Shiloh, and how they were experiencing trouble and corruption in the temple. But now in chapter 4, we move from internal troubles to external ones. We hear about the Philistines. These are the neighbors to the west, and they are mentioned almost 150 times in First and Second Samuel. The Philistines apparently had connections to Greece, and in particular, connections to Greek military equipment. And as one author writes, they made the most of their connection, and they used their resources to trouble their neighbors, especially Israel. So Israel experiences this oppression from the Philistines, and so by looking at that story, it's a chance for us to see their interaction with God. But one note before we read our passage, It's good to remember that the Bible is an ancient book. And there are sometimes some passages where we'll feel our distance culturally more than others. It might not be the case, but I imagine that maybe this next section, Samuel 4 through 6, is one where we will feel that distance. It's called the Ark Narrative and talking about the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. We see in these next few chapters the experience of the Ark going into captivity. gets captured by the Philistines, but then the Ark of God coming back out in victory. It's a chance for us this morning as we look at this first part in which it is captured, a chance for us to ask questions along with Israelites about God's presence and God's absence, and especially in the face of loss or sorrow. So let's look at our passage. This is 1 Samuel 4, verse 1 through 22. You can follow in your order of worship or your Bible. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Oh, sorry, I should start at the beginning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman, attended, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. We pray that you'd give us hearts to receive it, and that by your spirit that you'd help us to hear and understand that your word would speak to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, this morning I want to do three things in the sermon. I want to first spend time just looking at the narrative and telling us, or looking at what happened here, and then I want to make two observations, one about us and one about God. So let's start with the story that we've just read. The Philistines, as I mentioned, were referenced almost 150 times in First and 2 Samuel. So they are a constant presence. Neighbors to the West, a source of conflict and a source of oppression for the Israelites, pushing into their land militarily with aggression. It is the backdrop of what's going on in this Old Testament book. And this tension, this external difficulty, this external problem, is expressed in our passage in battle. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Epech. Now, we don't know for sure, but most scholars think those locations tell us that the Philistines were marching to Shiloh. The religious center of Israel as a way to strike a blow against the people. And so Israel goes out to meet them, to face their enemies. The Philistines draw up in a line, and when the battle ends... Israel is defeated. We're told about 4,000 men die on the field of battle. 4,000. A terrible outcome. A great loss. Israel gathers back at camp filled with grief, with pain, with fear. And even though it's just briefly mentioned, just a few verses, we can feel sentence by sentence, the story moves deeper into loss. We have felt great grief earlier in passages in 1 Samuel. If you were here, we heard about barren Hannah longing for a child. We heard of Hannah being mocked in her longing. We heard about Eli facing the corruption of his sons, Hopni and Phinehas, being told, Eli, your sons are worthless men. And his sorrow is only deepening when his sons refuse to listen to him. And now here we see a grief again spread among the people, filled with fear and loss. The people and the elders ask, why? Why has the Lord defeated us today? And obviously the circumstances probably feel far away, but maybe we can relate. Maybe this is a moment in the story where we can begin to feel our presence. That whether outwardly or inwardly, we've asked, why? Why? God, what are you doing? And where are you? The people in their grief and in their loss ask the question, why? But in our passage, we see that they do not arrive at an answer. They ask, but they do not arrive at an answer. Rather, they arrive at a plan. They arrive at a plan. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here from the temple that it may save us from the power of our enemies. Routed, bewildered, angry, grieving, the Israelites make a plan, and they send for the priests, Hopni and Phinehas, to bring the ark. Hopni and Phinehas are two names that represent gluttony and selfish use of power, viewing the temple and the worship through their own appetites and desires, and now they escort the the ark to the field of battle. And to better understand what's happening, we need to just briefly ask, what is the ark, and why do they think this would be a good plan? What is it? The ark is a dominant in Old Testament writing, and especially Exodus and later, but it, it was a box or a chest covered in gold, and is at the heart of Israel's worship of God. More important than the shape, though, is what it contained might be odd for us to stop for a moment, but if we could think even in our own self, like a memory box or things that we set aside that we want to keep for later, whether it's a memory of a special event, a memory of a person, maybe you have something like that in your closet or in your home. In some very small way, that points at what the ark contained. For inside the box was the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, there was a jar of manna, the bread from heaven that God gave, and Aaron's staff, Aaron's rod. All of these things were significant in themselves, but they pointed to a memory of who God was and what God had done. It was for, because of these contents, the box, the ark, was called the ark of testimony or the ark of the covenant. For seeing it and knowing what was inside of it reminded the people that God was the one who took them out of slavery, took them out of bondage, and said to them at Mount Sinai, you are my people, and I am your God. We entered a covenant together. So the ark reminded them of this reality, but the ark also was a sign, was a representative of God's presence among them. That God was not just far off, but he would dwell with his people. Now might have noticed in our passage it referenced the cherubim. The cherubim were these winged angel beings that were made of gold on top of the ark and that place was where God would meet with his people in the holy place of the temple where Moses would meet with God or the priests would go in to make sacrifice so the ark was also called the mercy seat or the place of atonement where God would show his mercy and presence to his people. And so the people decide that they need to bring this ark, they need to take it out of the temple. They need to bring God's presence with them, a sign of His power, what He's done. They bring it to battle, that they would have courage and encouragement, and that the Philistines would be frightened. And guess what? It worked, right? The Israelites were encouraged. And the Philistines were frightened. Do you follow the story, look, they bring the ark into the camp, and the Israelites let out a great yell, look, the ark of God has arrived. And the Philistines hear it, and they wonder, what's going on? What is this? And when they hear what happens, they say, woe to us. The God that the Israelites worship, the gods that they worship, they're the ones that defeated the Egyptians filling them with plagues. You see, the Philistines have heard, they've heard about the exodus, about Israel coming out of Egypt. They've heard that the God of Israel has acted and overturned powers. And so they cry out, woe to us. And here we can pause for a moment to think about where this story is building to, for us. And as I t- thought about how the story is being written and how it's being crafted, I I thought about a baseball game. (laughs) might sound strange, right? But for us to try to grasp what's happening here. Maybe you can picture, or maybe you've even been to this setting, at the end of a home baseball game, maybe the Cubs or the White Sox, whoever you want to imagine. Home team's in the lead and they call in the closing pitcher. They call in the, the pitcher who can throw the 100 mile per hour fastball. They call him in The music's blaring, the crowd's cheering, the PA announcers announcing the pitcher's name. He climbs on the mound and bears down, ready to throw that fastball. The crowd's on their feet, anticipating the strikeout, and the fastball comes, but what happens? The batter swings, and suddenly, instead of missing the ball, the ball flies to the outfield and over the fence for a home run. The crowd is silent maybe even falling into their seats. Maybe you've been to a game like that. It's far removed, right? But if we can picture a scene like that, then we understand how this passage is building up. Everything about our passage is leading us to expect that while Israel lost the first battle, they're going to be victorious in the end. The presence of the ark, the arrival of the priests, The mighty shout, the Philistines quaking with fear and woe. Israel's victory is at hand, but the events take a surprising turn. The expectations of the elders and the priests and the soldiers are turned upside down. Look what happens. The Philistines do not retreat. They fight, and Israel is defeated. The Israelites end up running away, every man to his own home, with 30,000 soldiers lying dead on the field. And the ark of God is captured. In order to capture this turn of events, this unexpectedness, this shock, we're told about Eli and his response that when he, the high priest hears about what has happened, he hears that his sons are dead, the battle has gone wrong, and the ark has been captured, he falls over, breaking his neck and dying. Five times in just a handful of verses we're told, the ark has been captured. The ark has been captured. It's hard for us to relate, but the foundations of the world of the people there, their assumptions about how things should work, were torn apart and broken. And what we can ask is, what do we make of this event? What do we make of this? And I want us to think of two things, two observations one about us and one about God. Start with us. The description of the first battle <clears throat> tells us the story of great loss. Why did we lose? And as they seek to face their enemies, as they seek to change things around, they ask God, why? And that question gives way to a plan, a plan of human action. In the face of their loss and fear, they used the ark in battle under the assumptions that it guarantees God's presence and it guaranteed victory. And if we can sit in that moment with them and how they thought about it, we encounter a misunderstanding, a twist in our hearts, in which we often confuse control, seeking to control something, we confuse it with faith. Controlling things is not the same thing as entrusting ourselves with faith. Even if the Philistines had great weapons, I don't know this, but I imagine the Israelites probably felt that they at least had better theology, right? You might have iron, but we have good theology. The Philistines were pagans, worshiping empty idols. But yet here in this scene, the Israelites were thinking and acting just like the pagans, thinking they could manipulate God, use God, force God into doing what they thought was best, like magic. In the face of their fears and loss, they arrive at a plan and the story of loss becomes a story about control. Attempts at control. And such stories, such control in the face of fear, I imagine if you're like me, they are recognizable. Even thousands of years ago, how many of us, when filled with stress or facing uncertainty, when wondering why, when facing loss, turn to acts of control, or illusions of control, whether in our own life or in the lives of those around us. In this way, religion can be attractive. Religion can be an attempt to control things, control our reputation, control our future, control our circumstances. It can be a means to support or justify our plans or our agenda. It can be a way of gaining a sense of control. I'm a good person. I'm doing good things. I pray, I go to church, I give money, I believe the right things. Therefore, things will go okay. And the Israelites experience their story of loss as a chance for us to be reminded that control is not the same as faith. Control is not entrusting ourselves to God. For controlling things or seeking to make things go a certain way, it sets our plans at the center. It sets our attainments at the center. It sets our accomplishments at the center. For if we do things the right way or set them in the right motion, then the outcome will be what we want. The Israelites seem to want to use the ark as a weapon. Secure their plans. But the unexpected turn, the movement of the story that suddenly turns upside down, invites us to ask: Does God belong to us? Does God belong to anyone? Does worship or faith does that belong? Does God's worship belong to our plans? Is God beholden? or controlled by our moral or religious activities. Our passage invites us to think about our own hearts and what we do in the face of loss, but it also offers a chance to think about God. For I want to see how our passage tells us something about God as well. The ark of God is not God. (laughs) It's important for us to establish that. The ark is not God. But the Lord is represented by the ark. And now this ark is lost to the Philistines. And it was possible in that setting, and it's very likely that people wondered, could the Lord not manage? Could the Lord not prevail? Did God not care? Who speaks about this loss or these questions in our passage? It's interesting, it's not Eli, the high priest. He doesn't make the theological statement, but rather it is his unnamed daughter-in-law. As she's giving birth, her companions try to reassure her, but she does not give heed to their encouragement. Her sense of loss outdistance their words of assurance. And in her last gasp, she names her child, and names in the scriptures, especially Old Testament, are very important. And she calls her new child Ichabod. Not a name that we use too often today. Ichabod means no glory, no glory. Or another way to say it is, where is the glory? It's not here. The glory is gone. Literally, what she is saying to the people who are trying to encourage her, literally, is that the glory has gone into exile. The glory, the splendor, the power, the majesty has gone into exile. This unnamed dying woman grasps the point of the capture of the ark in its profound significance. A humiliated God has become the trophy of an enemy. We can't say that strongly enough. That's the way the story unfolds. A humiliated God has become the trophy of an enemy. And the movement of that story allows us to think about who God is and his work for his people, especially as we see the trajectory of the scriptures and how God acts to rescue his people, how God's action is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. For in this moment, we have a glimpse of the idea that instead of Israel going into exile, the ark did. Instead of Israel going into exile, the Lord went into exile, taking on the curse of his people. Israel suffered humiliating defeat at the hands of the Philistines, and the Lord God shares in their humiliation. Of course, this is not the end of the ark narrative, not the end of the story, but here we see our God, the God who enters into the defeat of his people. God has made himself vulnerable. The ark was vulnerable. Imagine God captured by the Philistines, We can picture, the story allows us to picture the ark captured as a trophy, perhaps on a caged wagon, the God of the Exodus looking wearily between the bars as the procession takes it back to where the Philistines live, as they shout in victory. And it's such a scene that we see God who identifies with his people, a God who even will take on flesh. For I hope that you can get where I'm going here, that the capture of the ark if we have eyes to see, it evokes the imagery of the cross. The arrest, the beating and humiliation of Jesus, God's presence. His long walk to the place of crucifixion filled with mocking and jeering and victorious chants of others. The glory has gone into exile. The cross was a symbol of Rome's power and it was meant to humiliate all those who would suggest that there's something other than Rome, something other than power around us. Jesus taken, crushed as a trophy for Rome, this is God in flesh entering into our death, our suffering, condemned in our place. To say that the ark of God was captured is like you and I confessing we believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and Him crucified. We believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners. In a culture in which we are often too quick to focus on positive thinking and positive actions, we can forget the depth of the cross and what it says about us and God. It invites us to think deeply about our sin and brokenness, the twists within us, Invites us to see and consider the unraveling of our humanity and of our world around us. This narrative doesn't end in chapter four. We'll see that God has something to say in the midst of his humiliation. But allows us to ask: who is our God? And invites us to confess that our God is the God who bears, who bore our flesh, who bore the cross, who bore our sin who bore the evil and hurt of this world. And in our sin and in our loss, we can confess that the only help, that the only help is the suffering God who enters into our death and pain. Our passage invites us to see such a God and invites us to have hope in him for his suffering is with us, but it will not be the final word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are and we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you draw near to us, and we pray, Lord, let us not turn to our plans or our control, but let us entrust ourselves to you, the God who forgives our sins, the God who speaks comfort into our loss, the God who makes promises of resurrection in the midst of death. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.